of all the world empires, surely one of the greatest was the Roman Empire. This empire lasted for over five centuries. That's incredible, isn't it? Over five centuries. And the, the size of this empire was absolutely enormous. Here, here's a map of the, of the Roman Empire during the reign of Caesar Augustus, uh, who was the emperor when Jesus was born. Well, take my word for it. It was a very vast and expansive empire. Um, and this empire was known for its military prowess, its technology at the time. Remember that phrase, all roads lead to Rome. There's a reason they said that, because of the incredible road systems they built. The Roman Empire was also known for its brutality, its brutality. Now, the church began in the midst of the Roman Empire, and for centuries it faced persecution from this great empire. The persecution wasn't constant, but when it flared up, sometimes it would flare up with great intensity as the Roman Empire demanded that the church would bow its knee to the empire rather than Christ. Despite being decisively outmatched on a purely human level, over time, the church triumphed. By the year 313 A.D., Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity and made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. The famous historian Will Durant wrote these incredible words. I love this quote. He says, There is no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians scorned or oppressed by a succession of emperors bearing all trials with a fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building order while their enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword with the word, brutality with hope, and at last defeating the strongest state that history has known. Caesar and Christ had met in the arena, and Christ had won. And of course, the immediate question is how, how could the church survive the persecution of this powerful empire, and not only survive, but grow so much in the midst of this persecution. You realize there is only one answer to that question. The answer is the fact that the church belonged to Jesus Christ. It is his church. It wasn't the, the church's power in of itself, but it's the fact that Jesus owns the church. He possesses the church, and he possesses all power, and he has promised that he will sustain the church until the end of time, and he will give the church the power it needs to carry out its mission to make disciples of all nations. The church is truly special. The church is special. There's never been anything like the church in history. Think about it. An international, multi-ethnic, largely volunteer group that's built on God's love that has dramatically changed the world like no other. The church is special. However, these days, the church has fallen on hard times, at least in our country. Outside of the church, there's a growing criticism that the church is outdated and intolerant. Inside the church, 
membership and attendance are down even before COVID came around. And the church sometimes struggles with false doctrine and leadership scandals. I believe it is high time that the church, that we recover the grand vision, God's vision of the church, as well as our firm commitment to the church. Our passage today is just what we need as we get to see a grand vision of the church that Jesus lays out for us today. So please let me invite you to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. This is the second passage, or excuse me, second message from this particular passage. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, found on page 822. Just to recap really briefly from last time. uh, Last time we read about how Jesus, here in Matthew 16, how he took his disciples away from the crowds. Uh, They needed a break, right? And he also wanted to hear, after two years of ministry, what the crowds thought about him. And so Jesus asked the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And if you recall, there was various opinions about who Jesus was. But the kind of the general consensus was that Jesus was a prophet. So then Jesus changes the focus from the crowds. Then he asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? Remember Jesus asking that question last week? And if you recall, Peter, the spokesperson of the disciples, he spoke up and said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter had finally gotten it. He had finally realized, as well as the others, that Jesus was the Messiah as depicted in the Old Testament. Now, of course, they were hoping that he was the Messiah all along. That's why they were following him. But it took a while for their expectations to line up with Scripture because there was a lot of expectation that the Messiah would come in and kick out the Romans, a political, military hero. Jesus, that was not his mission based on the Old Testament. And so finally, they understood that Jesus was the Messiah. He was God in human flesh. And that he was here with this mission. So today, we're going to look at the last three verses of this passage. The focus is going to shift from who Jesus is and his identity now to the church. Jesus is going to teach about the church. He's going to describe what is the foundation of the church. And he's also going to describe the permanence of the church. He also is going to describe the power of the church. Great stuff we're going to see here in this passage. Now again, just as a reminder, uh, this passage is is kind of a, a stepping stone, if you will, to next week we're going to start a new series on the book, the New Testament book of 1 Peter, all right? And Peter's a central character here in this passage. That's going to be a great launching point for us to start 1 Peter next week, which is an absolutely fabulous book in the New Testament. So if if everybody's with me here, let's open up to Matthew 16, verse 18. Again, the first part here is the foundation of the church, the foundation of the church. Verse 18, Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. On this rock, I will build my church. So the first question that pops into your mind is, who is the rock? 
Is it Peter? Is it Peter's declaration of faith? Or is it somehow a combination of both? What is it that Jesus is going to be building his church upon? Everybody with me so far? What is the rock there? It's a very important issue. It's important in our day. Because we, we know that the Roman Catholic Church believes that the Pope is the exclusive head of the church. And this passage is very important for their argument. They believe that the Pope descends from Peter, okay, as the exclusive head of the church. Protestant theologians would differ with that view, often affirming that it is Peter's declaration of faith. So this is a very important question, right? What, what's going on here? What is the church built upon? I'm going to lay my cards down on the table right now and let you know what I think Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying it is both, that Peter does have significance as the first disciple to make this declaration of faith that he understood who Jesus truly is. But Jesus is not teaching that Peter has authority over all the apostles or that Peter has authority over the entire church. And he's certainly not teaching that a successor of Peter has authority over all of the church. So let's dig into the text and see why I say that. Jesus, he uses a play on words. Remember Simon Peter, his name was Simon. Jesus renamed him Peter. And he says, you're Peter. The word Peter is interesting. It's the, it comes from the Greek word Petros. So in other words, you're, he named him, right, Petros. He goes on to say, and on this rock, I will build my church. Interestingly, the word here is similar, but a little different. He doesn't say Petras, but he says Petra. That was a different word for rock. It was kind of a foundation type rock that you would build on, okay? So Jesus is saying, you are Peter, the rock, and on this foundation rock, I will build my church. So we're back to that question, what is the rock? Now I think he is speaking about Peter here. He's talking directly to Peter here in the context. He's not talking to the other disciples yet. He's saying, you're Peter. And so I think, again, Peter is the first disciple to truly understand who Jesus' identity was. He's, in a sense, the first member of the church, you might say. The foundational member. And most scholars today would affirm that the rock is Peter. However, you cannot disconnect Peter from his declaration of faith. Peter is not singled out for something noble about himself, but he's singled out for what he actually says. And throughout the Gospels, you see many times how Peter falls on his face, doesn't he? Jesus chides him for his lack of faith and understanding at various points before this. If you're there in your Bible, as the dialogue ensues, drop down to verse 23. We're not going to cover it today, but as they continue to have this conversation, Jesus rebukes Peter with these incredibly strong words. He says, get behind me, Satan. Very strong rebuke of Peter. He was not infallible at all. He was a sinner just like you and I. We know later at the very end of Jesus' life, the night before the cross, who was it that denied Jesus three times? It was Peter. 
He's a weak sinner, just like all of us. But he rightly gets it and declares that Jesus is the Christ. So the rock is both Peter and his confession of faith. Let me just take a moment, if I can, and talk just for a second about the Roman Catholic claim that Peter is the exclusive head of the church. I think that claim is false. As we just said, Peter is very important. He was the first disciple called. He was the leader amongst the apostles during Jesus' ministry. But there is a huge difference in saying that Jesus was the first member of the church. Excuse me, Peter was the first member of the church. Then saying that Peter is the exclusive head of the church who has infallible authority. I'll just give you a few more reasons why. Number one. James. James was the leader of the early church. Did you know that? In Acts 15, when they have the Jerusalem Council, the most important meeting they had in the early church, who was the one who led the meeting? It wasn't Peter. It was James, the brother of Jesus. So as the early church grew and developed, James was actually the leader of the church, it seems. Number two, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he calls Peter, James, and John pillars of the church, not just Peter, according to Galatians 2.9. And indeed, Paul rebuked Peter in front of the Galatian church because of Peter's prejudice against Gentile Christians. Third, the New Testament never describes an exclusive leader of the church besides Jesus. He is the exclusive head of the church. He is the head of the church. Jesus chose 12 apostles who were to found the church. And then after that, there is no exclusive leadership of the church. No person is ever singled out, nor is there ever a plan of succession where it would pass from person to person to person, like you see with the Pope. Jesus chose apostles, right? So again, I just think this claim doesn't hold water here. Peter is significant but not in the way that the Roman Catholic Church would say. Now, going back to our passage, Jesus says that he's going to build his church upon this rock. Now, this is interesting as well. It's the first time in Jesus' ministry so far that he uses the word church. Ekklesia. You ever heard that word before, ekklesia? comes from the Greek word ekkaleo. That means the called out from. The church, we are the called out ones. Isn't that beautiful? I hope that really sinks into your heart. You are the called out ones. God has called you out of the world to himself. He has called you out of darkness to be his child. Colossians 1.13 says, For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Same idea there. The idea of calling us out. And notice that Jesus says, this is my church. He doesn't delegate this, right? This is His church. And He is the one in control of it. He is the one who's building it. And He is the one who will sustain it until the end of time. Wow. Wow. That changes how we see the church, right? So we've seen the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church is 
Peter and his confession of the church. And this is what Jesus took there in Matthew 16. And now he says, I'm going to build this church because you understand what it is built upon. It is built upon understanding who I am and believing that I am the Messiah. Now we come to the second part, the permanence of the church. And the rest of verse 18, Jesus said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is a very famous saying of Jesus, but it needs a little explanation. Hope you guys are tracking, because this is a great passage. We kind of work through some stuff here in this passage. Now, to start, in the original Greek language, Jesus actually says, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. You say, what is Hades? Well, Hades is sometimes used in Scripture to speak about the realm of the dead. And so I think what Jesus is talking about here, he's using Hades kind of as a symbol to talk about death. In other places of Scripture, death is viewed as the great enemy of humanity. Isaiah 25 says that death, quote, is the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. In 1 Corinthians 15.26, Paul says that when Jesus returns, quote, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, in the ancient world, gates were symbolic of power. So Jesus says the gates of Hades, in other words, the, the gates of the power of death, they will not prevail against the church. In, in Revelation 1.18, Jesus said, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus rose again, and he defeated death. And as a result, he has the, uh, the keys of death and Hades. And so death will not prevail against the church. Is it because we're going to figure out some sort of medicine that will make us live forever? No. It's because Jesus has conquered death by his resurrection. And he has promised that everyone who places their faith in him will receive resurrection bodies as well. Let me ask you, has Jesus' resurrection ever become personal for you? Has it become personal for you? Not just something that maybe you've heard about in church, or maybe you've read about it a little bit, but has it become personal for you? You see, apart from Christ, death is a scary final reality. And sadly, many people are unprepared for death. They're unprepared for death. Either they're petrified of it and don't even want to think about it at all, or maybe they kind of come to some grim, grim realization, but they have absolutely no hope about it. That's not what Christians and the church are supposed to be about, are we? Because of who Christ is. Yes, death still occurs, but Jesus showed that it's ultimately powerless for the church. When we think about our death, we should go right to Jesus' resurrection. I think about that sometimes. You know, I'm 48 years old. I'm, I'm in the second half more than likely now. We never know when the day is going to come, but more than likely that's... So you start thinking about those things the older you get. And what I think about very often is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And because of that, I have confidence that I too will rise again. Because of what he did. Jesus destroyed death and he will destroy it for you and I. He will give us resurrection bodies. 
In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I hope and pray that is a reality for each one of us here today. That that glorious hope of the resurrection would be personal in your life. That you will trust Jesus as your own personal Lord and Savior. And it is amazing how he gets rid of that fear of death. I remember becoming a Christian in 1994 and and telling my brother previously when we had some conversations about the gospel and saying I was afraid to die. I became a Christian in 1994. I remember driving a two-hour drive back from Washington, D.C. to Richmond, Maryland to my home. And it was gone. It was gone. It wasn't a psychological trip, but the Lord gave me peace that I was his and I would be with him when I died. Whenever that will be, I am the Lord's and I will rise again because of what Jesus did. So the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. I think also in a secondary way, that Hades, Jesus can be using in here for a symbol of the agents of death. In other words, demons and human governments use death to threaten the church with persecution. And in case you didn't know it, the 20th century was filled with persecution against the church all around the world. And in fact, some say that persecution is worse in the world today than it ever has been before. Persecution can rage against the church, but it will not prevail. Why is that? It's not because we are strong, we are smart, or whatever kind of adjective you want to put next to the church. It is because Jesus, this is his church, and he promises that the church will withstand and prevail against all persecution. He has sustained it through the ages. And he will do so until the end of time. Richard Warmbrand was a Lutheran pastor who lived in Romania under communist rule. He experienced tremendous persecution, spending 14 years in prison because of his refusal to honor communism above Christianity. Later, Warmbrand started the ministry Voice of the Martyrs that, that assists the persecuted church around the world. In a March uh, 2020 newsletter that they uh, described here, they related an interview that Warmbrand gave in 1970 when he was asked if communism was a threat to the church in his country. And he said these words, quote, Not the church of Christ. Even the gates of hell cannot prevail against her. It is communism which is rather endangered by the existence of the church because the last victory is ours. We don't tremble before communism. They should be in panic because of us. You know what? That brutal communist country or government in his nation crumbled about 20 years later. The church is persecuted around the world. It might be in a Muslim-dominated country. It might be in a communist 
country. And of course, we know there's a growing tide of kind of aggressive secularism in the Western world that wants to marginalize Christianity. And as a church, we shouldn't like that. And we should use our voice and our rights as citizens to speak out about these things. But at the end of the day, we rest in the fact that Christ is victorious and all the gates of Hades and all the agents of persecution will not thwart the fact that the church will stand until the end of time. So we can be at peace, can't we? We can be active. We can serve and we can do things. But we, and even if the, 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 the forces of evil rage hard against the church, we can have an absolute peace. Amen? The permanence of the church. So we've seen the, function, or the foundation of the church, the permanence. The third part that Jesus talks about here is the power of the church. Let's read verses 19 together. Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So again, some challenging verses here. What is, what is Jesus saying here? Well, Jesus is saying, I'm entrusting you, Peter, with the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys were obviously symbolic for allowing entrance or denying entrance. And he's talking about this here in light of heaven. And so Jesus was saying, in a sense, I'm giving this to you, Peter. And we know, of course, that Jesus' prediction was entirely accurate because Peter did play a very pivotal role in the life of the early church. In Acts 2, when he gave that great sermon at Pentecost, uh, about 3,000 Jewish people there who were at, in Jerusalem for the time, they became followers of Jesus as the Messiah. Go ahead a little bit to Acts chapter 10. Who was it? It was Peter who spoke to the Gentile Christians, a really watershed moment because now the church was comprised of both Jewish and Gentile Christians. So Peter played a very important role in that. He also talks about Peter binding and loosing on earth what is bound and loose in heaven. What does that mean? What is he talking about there? I think it means that he had the authority to declare that a person was forgiven or not. If they were forgiven, they had been loosed from their sins. But if they were refusing Christ, they were still bound in their sins. Does that make sense? Now, as we've said, Peter is very important. But before we give him too much clout, couple more points we need to add here about this idea of the power given to the church, that it's not just about Peter here in this context. First, Jesus grants this same authority to all believers. In Matthew 18, 18, if you skip ahead just a couple chapters, Jesus gives this same promise to all the disciples. He says these words, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus says the exact same words to all the disciples that he spoke to Peter just a couple of chapters earlier. Now in Matthew 18, the context is about church discipline there. And the context of church discipline, if it goes all the way to the end of church discipline, Jesus says that that power is given to the entire church. Does that make sense? So this authority is given to all believers. And Peter, which is very ironic to me, Peter himself, when we go to 1 Peter, he strongly teaches about the priesthood of believers, that the entire church has authority. 
to exercise its authority and power and service of God, not just one unique individual. So Jesus grants his authority to all believers. And then second, our authority comes from God. Go back to the verse there. Notice how Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Now, this is interesting because Greek grammarians debate how to best translate this verse because it's a really rare construction in the New Testament. Some say that it's better translated something like this, though. Whatever you bind on earth will already be bound in heaven. So it's not that the church has authority apart from God to declare that someone is forgiven or not, but basically the church is acting as the representatives of the Lord here on this earth that when people agree with God in what he has declared, then we affirm those things, right? We are pointing to what God has already declared, and we're saying that you are bound or loose based on what God has already decided. Does that make sense? It's not the church having this unique authority that we have to, you know, bind God's hand. We are simply declaring what the Lord has already promised, this power to the church. If you're still processing it, maybe an analogy that would be helpful is that sometimes, say for example, the United States sends a, a team, a delegate, uh, to negotiate peace with another country, right? Those individuals, they've been given authority from the United States to go and negotiate, right? Right? And so they might make arrangements, but they're not doing it in their own authority by themselves, right? It's all backed by the United States back home, what we have granted those delegates to do on our behalf. So we exercise spiritual authority as delegates of the Lord. But it is real powerful authority that the church possesses. The passage closes with Jesus telling them not to tell others that he was the Christ, the Messiah. Verse 20, it says, Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, when you read that, you're like, why does Jesus say that? They finally get it that he's the Messiah, so why does he turn it around and say, I don't want you to go tell everybody yet? You ever think about that? Jesus wasn't ready to finish his mission. He was still training these disciples to take his role when he left. He was still preaching the gospel, and he knew all the misguided expectations, right, of him in the world. And he didn't want to cut short his ministry before it was time. And so he said, for now, guys, keep it under wraps. But does Jesus always keep it under wraps? No, he doesn't. In fact, when he gets to the end of his course, what does he do? He gets on a donkey, and he rides into Jerusalem to fulfill a messianic prophecy that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem, right? In other words, there was no more secret anymore. He was declaring to Jerusalem, I am your Messiah. And when he was presented in that mock trial before the religious leaders, and they ask him if he was the Messiah, he affirms it knowing that it's going to lead to his death. And certainly now that Jesus has died and risen again, the church is not to keep this a secret, is it? We are to tell the whole world that Jesus is the Messiah. Now as we close out here, I just want to bring home two points about the church. About the church. This is really what Jesus has been focusing on here in this passage. And I want to bring it home with just a couple points here for us to consider. 
the first thing that I want each of us to be reminded of is having a grand vision of the church. As I said at the beginning, there's, the church is special. There's never been anything like the church. And there's never been anything like this multi-ethnic, international group built upon God's love, changing the world the way that it has. But I've talked about also how the church is falling on hard times in recent days in our country. And this clouds our mind, changes and kind of works against our motivation. We need to be reminded about this grand vision, this God-sized vision of the church. We need to recover who we are as the church. We need that grand vision of the church. And I think to start, we need to be reminded of how precious the church is to God. If something is valuable to God, then it should be valuable to us. Amen? And the church is extremely, supremely valuable to God. You see in the fact that Jesus died for the church. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Heaven forbid that we would treat the church lightly when Christ was willing to die for the church. May we value the church. And the church also is God's chosen means of spreading the kingdom around the world. The church is the organization, the entity, that the group that spreads the gospel by declaring who Jesus is and by showing tangible acts of love to the world so that they see that God loves them too. Do you see how the church is amazing? It is glorious. It is permanent. It is valuable to God. Look at the titles of the church that you find in the New Testament. The bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the temple of God, the pillar of truth. May we have a grand vision of the church regardless of what the world might say, regardless of the struggles that the church might be having, let's be reminded of Jesus' vision of the church. That is what we need. We also need a firm commitment to the church. A firm commitment to the church. Now, in the New Testament, the word church is used in two different ways. Sometimes it's talking about the, the universal church, right? The, the believers from all time all around the world, right? The, the church is comprised of believers in Japan and uh, Uruguay and Mexico and England and Saudi Arabia, all around the world. That is the universal church, okay? But it, more than often, though, when the New Testament speaks of church, it's actually talking about local churches, Local bodies of believers gathered together. We're kind of an outpost of the greater body of Christ. And I believe that God wants us to value the local church as well. Not just the universal church, but a local body of believers. Because God became one of us, right? He became incarnate. And He wants us to be around each other, flesh and bones, right? Around each other 
and a local body of believers. So let me just give some practical challenges for all of us. Kind of a spiritual inventory to see how you're doing. A couple of bullet points I just want to throw out to you. One is attend regularly. Commit to being here on Sunday when we gather for worship. Do you know that your attendance matters? When you are here, it matters greatly. It is noticed and appreciated. And I would also say that your attendance is important for you. Because when you are here, you grow spiritually. You are learning the Word of God. You are worshiping the Lord. You're fellowshipping with other believers and growing and encouraging each other as we serve the Lord together. Let me encourage you not only to attend, but to participate. God has given each Christian at least one spiritual gift to serve the church, to build up the church. And we might have different skills and experience and background that God wants us to use in a variety of ways to build up the church. Pray for our church. Pray for unity, wisdom, and commitment. Pray for our community to come to know Christ. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel as we are called to advance the kingdom to our neighbors. And then lastly, I would just say, I would encourage you to plug into our church, to become a member of our church. And it's God's good timing that we actually have a membership class coming in a couple of weeks here on January 30th after church. It's two hours long. We provide lunch for you, child care if you need it, but it's a great opportunity just to get to know what we believe, what are our practices and ministries and so forth, and how you can get plugged in here to this body of believers. God wants us to have a grand vision of the church and also to have a firm commitment to serving in it. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day and thank you for this teaching that you gave Peter and the other apostles. We thank you just for the foundation that we have been given in the church. We thank you for Peter and his great declaration of faith. Lord, we thank you for the power that you have given, not just to Peter, but to all of your people, all of your disciples, to carry out the ministry of the church. And Lord, we thank you for your promises that the church will continue to sustain itself, Lord, by your power and by your might, that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. We thank you for the glorious hope of eternal life that you have given, that Christ has been risen and we will rise again too. Not just a wish or a a fairy tale, Lord, but a rock-solid fact that Jesus rose again And we can rejoice in that truth as well. Lord, we pray that you would stir our hearts here this morning. Clear away the cobwebs and give us a push, a nudge, Lord, in our view of you and the church. We thank you for this grand vision of the church that you've laid out here in Matthew 16. 
God, we pray that we would be reminded of how much you love the church and how valuable the church is and how important it is to carry out the Great Commission. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us as well to go forth and wanting to have a firm commitment to this church, Lord, to serve it, to bless it, to pray for it, to love it, and to build it up all for your name and for your glory. We thank you, Lord God. In Jesus' name we ask it. All God's people said, amen. Amen.